Well, tonight we return to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10. I'm going to read four verses, beginning in verse 7. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues or languages, to another the interpretation of Lord, we pray for your spirit, pray that he would teach us, pray that you would give us understanding of this passage, Lord. We pray that uh, we will leave here with an understanding of what you have intended for us. In Christ's name, amen. So we've been working through chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, and tonight we're going to pick up again in verse 10. And I have to remind us again, Paul was ministering and writing at a time of great upset, great change in the world. This was a time of transformation that began with Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension, and Pentecost. It was unlike any other in human history, apart from the flood, maybe. But the flood was all physical. This was a spiritual transformation of the world that was taking place here. And on the day of Pentecost, just as Jesus had prophesied, the Holy Spirit was poured out on the apostles and some others with them. And they received power, just as Jesus said they would. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And they began to manifest these unusual spiritual gifts. They were healing people. They were speaking in one language and being heard in another. When the early church, Christ had departed and sent the apostles out. He told them to wait. The Spirit will come. And then out they went with the gospel. First in Jerusalem, then into the area of Judea, into Samaria, into the remotest parts of the earth. And God gave them gifts. Natural gifts, as we find listed in Romans 12. He gave certain teaching offices, as we read in Ephesians 4. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And he gave miraculous sign gifts, spiritual gifts. That's what we read about here in 1 Corinthians 12. And we read about this in the book of the Acts of the Apostles. Acts 2.1, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, 120 of them. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves. They rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues, other languages, as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now, verse 5, there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. 
you drop down to Acts 2.43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Now this is a major development in the world. So what was the meaning of these signs and wonders? Where did they get this power? Well, they got the power from God, the Holy Spirit. What was the meaning? Well, look at Hebrews 2, 3, and 4. The writer here tells us, after the word was first spoken, the word of salvation was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us, this is another generation now he's writing to in Hebrews, and the writer of Hebrews is a second generation Christian. After it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, be the apostles and others. God also testifying with them. How? How did God attest to them? By signs and wonders and various miracles. By gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. These gifts are sovereignly gift given by God. 2 Corinthians 2.12 The signs of a true apostle were performed among you. Well, what were the signs of a true apostle? Signs and wonders and miracles. These were signs of a true apostle. So called by Jesus Christ and empowered by God the Holy Spirit, the apostles went into the world. With what? With a message from God. A message. Micaiah had gone into to speak to the kings with a message from God. And now these apostles are sent by Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, and given a message to take to the world from God. He gave these apostles supernatural gifts to attest to them as his apostles and to attest to the message they were preaching. That's the purpose of the signs and wonders and all these gifts. These gifts were given by God to attest to the truth of the gospel. Let's not lose sight of what the purpose of these gifts was. And Paul and Peter and John and the other New Testament writers were writing in the midst of this transformation. Things were happening that had never happened before. A word of eternal life had come in Christ. And Paul's writing in the midst of this. So that's our context. Now, can God still work miracles today? Yes. Yes, He can. I don't doubt that He does. But that does not mean that He bestows these supernatural sign gifts today. And we've talked about this, and we're going to talk about it when we get to the end of all of this. But now that we have the completed revelation of God in Scripture, these gifts are utterly unnecessary. You want to know whether what somebody says is from God, you check it with Scripture. And that's what we do today. But in those days, so the Holy Spirit bestowed all these gifts, the natural giftings that we read about, these spiritual gifts, these teaching offices. He sent prophets, he sent apostles to teach the people, and he equipped them with something that would attest to them as sent by God. Remember as well what Paul wrote here in verse 7. These gifts weren't for anybody's entertainment or to demonstrate somebody's personal power. They were for the common good. These were to build up the church in the faith. And this was the case in Corinth. Now this five years ago had been a pagan town. These were pagan people, pagan worshipers. And now these gifts, first the gospel and now these gifts attesting to the gospel were present in Corinth. We don't know exactly 
how many of these gifts people in Corinth and the congregation were executing or exercising. We know Paul was. We know Peter did. And Paul writes as though they too were receiving these spiritual gifts, these manifestations, miracles, etc. But Paul's writing to show them the purpose of these gifts. They were abusing these gifts. All of a sudden you've got this power. Paul wrote to correct them. These gifts are for the common good. So we've looked at the first six gifts enumerated here in 1 Corinthians 12. Tonight we come to the seventh gift listed. And because it's connected to the sixth gift, prophecy, there's going to be some interplay here between the two. But this seventh gift, the distinguishing of spirits or spiritual discernment, this gift appears to be paired by Paul with the gift of prophecy. Now again, I can't stress this enough. There were no New Testament writings available in 56 AD. If there were, it's hard to imagine they had reached Corinth. So these gifts for that time were the means by which God testified to the authority of what the apostles were teaching. Now we saw last week, God sent prophets, Old Testament prophets, New Testament prophets, to speak to the people. And a prophet would be one who would receive a message from God and then speak that message to the people. Sometimes he would predict the future. Sometimes he would speak to needs of the present. Oftentimes in Old Testament Israel, God was telling them, look, if you don't repent, you're not going to continue to receive these blessings I've promised. God sent prophets to affirm the blessings of the Old Covenant and to warn of the loss of those blessings if they disobeyed him. And he also sent those prophets to affirm the message, the promise that Messiah would come. The Old Testament prophets, as we saw here in, in 1 Kings tonight, 22, were counselors to the kings. And we saw three marks of a true prophet. And they, there may be really four here. The words of a true prophet will never contradict the word of God. Pretty simple. Deuteronomy 18, 21. His prophetic predictions will always come to pass. Prophets don't bat 400. They don't bat 600. They don't bat 950. Prophets bat 1,000. God never gets it wrong. If He has spoken, it will come to pass. We saw it again in this passage in 1 Kings tonight. So those who truly speak for God, the words they speak will come to pass. That's number two. And third, a true prophet is identified by the fruit he bears. Now, folks, there have been false prophets as far back as we can imagine. Certainly in the earliest days of the Old Testament, all through the Apostolic Age, all through the New Testament, and they're all around us today. True prophet is identified, though, by the fruit he bears. Number three, here's Jesus' words, Matthew seven fifteen: Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them, how? By their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. So, there's a modern idea of prophecy, whereby people say, well, 
A prophet today doesn't have to get it right every time. People, even in the Reformed camp, will allow for the idea of prophets who sometimes get it wrong. The Bible doesn't allow for that. Nowhere in the Old Testament or the New Testament is any true prophet said to have spoken falsely or in a manner inconsistent with Scripture or to be lacking in moral character. All of this is consistent with the marks of both Old Testament prophets and New Testament prophets. So if you want to quickly be able to strike off from your list of prophets all those who predicted the end of time and the return of Christ, go to Wikipedia. You'll find 20-some pages of them from William Miller to and into Hal Lindsey and Chuck Smith and others in the late 20th century. And they're still out there. They're still out there. This matter of moral character is also something we see in all the true prophets. Yeah, now Peter, you'd say, wasn't, wasn't he a bit of an impulsive guy? Yeah, he was. He also died for Christ. Crucified, upside down. So John tells us, 3 John 11, Beloved, don't imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God... The one who does evil has not seen God. So these prophets who are caught in homosexuality and various affairs and whatever crimes they get caught up in, they're not from God. They're false. Now Peter, like Paul, also wrote during this time of transformation. This is a time when many false prophets arose. We read this in all of the writings of Peter, Paul, and John. Look at 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who, who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And many will follow their sensuality. Now this is an immorality we're talking about. And because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. So we see greed, sensuality, as two marks of a false prophet. Look what John writes, 2 John, 2 John uh, 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. Now, these are deceivers, many deceivers in the world, not acknowledging Jesus came in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the Antichrist. So false prophets, Old Testament and new, could be identified not only by whether their words were consistent with what God had previously spoken, whether their words come to pass, but by their lives, and also by the lives of those who follow them. Now, this is helpful for us today. This set of guidelines wasn't necessarily all that helpful for those in Corinth in 56 AD. They didn't have necessarily all of the counsel of God to compare what was being said to. They didn't necessarily always know what was going on in the 
personal lives of these men who were presenting themselves as prophets. Nonetheless, people of God, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, are warned that false prophets will come. And they're warned to resist these false prophets. So how were they to do this? Well, now we come to a gift that God gave to some in the days before the canon was completed by which they could distinguish between the true prophets and the false. Between prophecy given by God and that which was claimed to be from God but which was not. This gift is called the distinguishing of spirits or spiritual discernment. God gave some this gift to be able to discern the true from the false. Now, in the apostolic age, remember, there were those who were called to the office of prophet. We read about them in Ephesians 4. And some who were not necessarily called to that office, but had received the gift of prophecy. might be a temporary gift. There's nowhere where we're indicated that these gifts were permanent. But the gift is given and somebody might prophesy. One might only prophesy on one occasion, like Zacharias did, as far as we know. Or one might be called to a permanent office, as in the case of, say, Isaiah, Jeremiah. And some in Corinth, who were not called to the office of prophet, like Isaiah, were given this gift of prophecy, at times. Now, I think we know, it's always been the case that not everybody who presents himself as a prophet is a genuine prophet. In fact, I don't believe there's any such thing today. Not in the sense of the Old and New Testament. And in order to have any kind of prophet today, you have to redefine the term from the way it is used in both the Old and New Testament. One who receives a new message from God and delivers it to the people. So there aren't any true prophets, but there have always been false prophets. And it was at times difficult, as I said, to before the canon was written, to know whether a man claiming to be a prophet should be believed or not. They could not go. This is so important to understanding why these gifts came and why they ended. Because they did not have the canon of Scripture to test what anybody was saying. God equipped them to do it. He saw to it there were people who were able to distinguish between the true and the false. Now there are several passages in the New Testament. And this is going to be to distinguish at first from the, this gift. There are several passages in the New Testament that address the necessity that we, all of us, test the spirits. Someone claims he has a word from the Lord. I don't know how many of you have ever been in a gathering where somebody pops up and says, I have a word from the Lord. Somebody claims that he is to be tested according to all of these marks that we have. And according, of course, to the New Testament as well now. So we've observed these three marks. His words must always be consistent with the previous revelation of God. If he claims new revelation of God, we should reject him. But here's what John said. Beloved, 1 John 4, 1, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. He's not talking about this gift right here. 1 Thessalonians 5.20 Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. So, how do we do this? 
How do we test the spirit that's in a man? Well, Micaiah was able to go to the Lord and get a word from him to find out what those prophets were preaching and whether it was true. In the time that John wrote, later in the first century perhaps than Paul, but we can't be certain. 1 John 4, 2, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Now here's John addressing the issue of the Gnostics. This test was really significant in the early church because there were those, Gnostics primarily, but others, who claimed Jesus wasn't really human. He was an apparition. What people saw and heard was an apparition. They really believed this. And if someone said Jesus did not come in human flesh, he was to be rejected. That was a simple test they could do. His was a lying spirit. Now, some think we go too far sometimes when we say that the unbelieving are ruled by Satan. But that's exactly what Ephesians 2, 1, 2, and 3 says. Walking according to the course of the prince of the air. But look at what the apostle says here. John, 1 John 4, 3. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Now, if a spirit is not from God, there's only one other place he can be from. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. Antichrist is someone who is not confessing Jesus has come from God. And then he writes in verse 5, they are from the world, these Christ deniers. Therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God doesn't listen to us. John's pretty blunt about it when he gets around to it. By this, excuse me, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So the one, John says, who doesn't believe the gospel message brought by the apostles is not from God. How do you know? Well, that's why God gave them the power to do healings and miracles, to speak in other languages, to even give, yes, in that time, new revelation from God. That was the attestation. And John says, he who doesn't believe the gospel message that we bring, he's not from God. He speaks from a spirit of error. Now the next test, and we're going to see when we come to chapter 13, all of these gifts we've been talking about, Paul was telling them to exercise them in love. I mean, really, what else is the common good but the exercise of love toward the brethren? So in 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another. That's the next sign. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Now, if you're an unloving person, this is going to be a frightening verse. The one who does not love does not know God. We better be about the business of loving one another. I didn't write this. The apostle, perhaps closest to Jesus, wrote this. The one who does not love does not know God. For God is love. These things aren't optional. So there's still many prophets, false prophets in the world, as there were when the apostles were preaching. And every believer is instructed here to test the spirits. And we do this, we do this by the word of God. 
and by examining the life of the person. Now, all exposition of Scripture and all claims of prophecy are judged according to what theologians call the analogy of faith. It means that all prophecy or exposition of Scripture is to be judged by the rest of Scripture. I don't know where the name came from. They all use it. The analogy of faith. If it is not consistent with the rest of Scripture, it is false. But Paul's showing us here. Now again, that was, that's for us. But then, at the time he was writing, some were given this special gift of the Holy Spirit, the ability supernaturally to distinguish between true spirits and false lying spirits. To distinguish between who spoke for Christ and those who spoke for Satan. Not a whole lot to say about this gift. But the Holy Spirit gave this to enable some to penetrate into what was behind certain things people were saying in order to determine. Remember, Paul didn't stay in Corinth or in Ephesus or in Thessalonica. He moved all over. He appointed elders in every place he was. And people would begin to preach and share the word of God. He didn't have Paul there anymore. didn't have Peter there anymore. How were they supposed to know? That's the purpose of these gifts. To know whether people were speaking for God or not. To know whether people were speaking truth. 1,700 years ago, maybe 1,600 years ago, John Chrysostom defined this gift this way. He said, The gift of discernings of spirits was a God-given ability to know who is of God and who is not to know who is a true prophet and who is a deceiver. And that's what it was. Chrysostom goes on, this was very important and necessary in the early church, for great was at that time what the rush of the false prophets, the devil striving underhand to substitute falsehood for truth. See, the devil wasn't just sitting by while the church was spreading all over the world. Who do you think these false prophets come from? Who sends them? Who motivates them? Calvin wrote this, the gift of discerning of spirits. Now this is 500 years ago. Provided the recipient with a clearness of perception in forming a judgment as to those who profess to be something. Calvin goes on, I speak not of that natural wisdom by which we're regulated in judging, this was a special illumination with which some were endowed by a gift from God. The use of it was this, that they might not be imposed upon by false prophets in the early church and false teachers, but might by that spiritual gift of discernment distinguish the true ministers of Christ from the false. God was working miraculously in those days. He works miraculously when He causes each one of us to be born again as well. Move ahead another hundred years. John Owen, a 17th century saint, says this was a particularly important gift before the New Testament canon was completed. Owen wrote that God gave this special gift of discerning spirits to contend against the mischief done in the church. 
Because at that time, with this abundance of spiritual gifts, remember, people are speaking in languages they don't know. They're hearing in languages they don't know. Some are prophesying. Some were working miracles. We don't know whether and to what extent that extended beyond the apostles. But some were working miracles. Some were walking up and actually healing people. Not these fake healings that go on today. They were healing organic diseases. Not psychosomatic illnesses. At that time, with this abundance of spiritual gifts in operation, Owen goes on, the ease with which they could be counterfeited, it was absolutely necessary they would know what was true and what was false. And you know, folks, Paul had this gift as well. He was an apostle. He was a prophet. He certainly had the gift of healings. He had the gift of miracles. And yes, he had this gift of distinguishing of spirits. Here's another example of it in Acts 16, 16. Philippi. It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling, making a lot of money, fortune-telling. We've got that today. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days. Paul was greatly annoyed. And he turned and he said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. How did he know? Distinguishing of spirits. And it came out at that very moment. Scripture contains many illustrations of the use of this gift. Remember what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 11. The devil masquerades as an angel of light. Prophet Micaiah revealed to the kings of Israel and Judah that that was a lying spirit speaking through the mouths of all of those false prophets. Jesus discerned the spirit of Satan when? Remember when he discerned the spirit of Satan speaking to him? When Peter said, God forbid, no, this shall not happen. Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Acts 13, Paul recognized Elimos as the son of the devil. So how is this relevant to us today? Well, the gifts may have ceased. The false prophets haven't. And, you know, we can so easily lose sight of the fact that we are in a warfare opposed by demons who seek our destruction. Those moments when we feel like maybe God ought to be doing a little better job for us. Why is this happening, Lord? Try to put doubt in our minds about the promises of God. Same thing Satan did in the Garden of Eden. And Satan wants us to doubt. He seeks our destruction. He seeks our condemnation. He seeks to draw us away from Christ. How many people do you know who were at a church at one time? Now we're gone. Satan's winning there. How many do you know who think they're Christians, think they're in good shape with God and haven't been near a Christian gathering in five years. Forces of darkness are still engaged in this constant spiritual warfare, just as they were in Corinth at that time. Ephesians 6.12, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, 
against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. This is still going on. The very thing that God gave them, this gift, distinguishing of spirits, to protect against, is still out there. takes different forms. So if the Holy Spirit no longer gives the gift of distinguishing of spirits, as He did then in the apostolic period, how are we to now fight this warfare? How do we do this? We can't, like Micaiah, recognize the false lying spirit. If we can't, like Paul, recognize the evil spirit. What's our weaponry against the forces of darkness? It's the easiest question I've ever asked, and Val's got it right. This is it. Read the rest of Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 13. Take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. And look what he says. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with what? With truth. With truth. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Having shod your feet with the preparation of what? The gospel of peace. In addition to all, take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Keep believing. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. This is our weaponry. And this is our weaponry, body of Christ. We are much stronger in unity with one another any of us could possibly be alone. We have something, folks, the Corinthians didn't have. We have the whole counsel of God. And He's revealed the way of salvation to us in His Word. He's revealed the way of defense against the forces of darkness in His Word. And He's revealed His will for our lives in His Word. So let us be ever thankful that we live in this time when we have all that God has chosen to reveal to us in this world. Well, Lord, we thank you that you have blessed us so abundantly that you've given us not only your spirit, but your word, that you've given us your son, that you have blessed us beyond what we could ever hope for or imagine, that you have laid up for us, Lord, a crown of victory, a place in glory in your presence. Lord, I pray that if I've missed anything that you intend for us to know, that you would, by the power of your Spirit, uh, bring it into the hearts of all those who hear this. Lord, we desire to know you and to grow in the knowledge of you and of the word you've given us. And so, Lord, we give you thanks. We proclaim your goodness, your love, your mercy, and your grace. In Christ's name, amen.